0: Because Money is supported by Patreon. Since our launch a couple of weeks ago, we are slowly building up a small army of patrons. We're not quite at the world domination stage yet, but we're getting there and we are incredibly grateful to anybody who's taken the time to check out the page and and even consider giving us a few bucks. If you're interested in learning more, uh, you can check us out at patreon.com slash because money and support the work that we're doing here. All right, so this week you get to be a fly on the wall in a conversation that Sandy and John and I had with David O'Leary from kindwealth.ca. David shared a ton of stuff which is still kind of rocking around in my brain. I can't get it out of there. About impact investing and the lessons that he learned by <laughs> going bankrupt uh, when the internet bubble crashed and the things that he's learned from being an analyst at morningstar he's just been everywhere he's got a ton of experience and he's bringing all that to kind of bear in a really interesting way in making this new practice at kindwealth so we talk about all of that but i won't get ahead of ahead of myself i'll let him tell it because he tells it way better than i do so here's david and this is him starting off by telling us how he got into finance to begin with.
1: So I started my career as studying, came out of high school thinking I would be a teacher. I came from a family of teachers, and I thought, well, I did well in English literature, so that's what I'll study, and then I'll go become a high school English teacher and coach some football, and that'll be a lot of fun. And I started working at a bank in uh, my final year of um, grade 13, OAC, when that was around still. And so literally one of my friend's mom, you know, his one of my friend's mom worked at the bank and he literally got all of us jobs. And so all of my friends worked at, at uh, across a, a number of branches in Etobicoke. Um, and so it was a lot of fun. It was a really cool place to work and uh, it paid really well relative to all the other jobs I had at my disposal at the time. Um, and so uh, I just started taking some industry courses um, like the FIC mutual funds license and, um, you know just some bank courses and things like that and I started to one of my other friends was really interested in investing in uh, the you know the stock market and learning about derivatives and I remember sitting down over coffee and talking about the futures market and how crazy it was and you know you could make an investment and you know just end up with the delivery of uh, you know pork bellies on your, <laughs> on your <friend's laughs> library, theoretically right and this is like late 1999 now so this is 1998 1999 and it's the tail end of the 10, you know the, the the clinton years and the you know bull market of the 90s and the peak of the internet bubble and so that time credit was real fast and loose um the banks i remember you, know, you could get your friends a credit card for you know ten thousand dollar limit credit card gold Mastercard for like your 19 year old friends who don't have oh, a job right and so you know all our friends had gold MasterCards and the bank was really loose with credit. And so what I noticed at the time was the bank was, um, what, what happened is anybody who came in and opened up a business account would get a, if they had a good credit, or the bank would go through and do an automatic credit check and kind of three, four months later, they may send a letter. Just it was done automatic at a head office uh, It was kind of a, I guess, an automated system they did this and they send you approval for a line of credit for $15,000 to help you with your, you know, cash flow for your business. So, you know, recognizing this, I realized, wow, well, this is interesting. And I'm investing at the time in the markets and, uh, and doing very, very well. You couldn't go wrong at the time. You just, anything you bought was going up <laughs> you just felt like, you know, you couldn't go wrong. And so little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Right. And so, and credits loose. So I realized these bank accounts, if you opened up a business account you could get pre-approved for this line of credit. So I went downtown and I registered a sole proprietor business and filled out a, you know, and got a registered a business and opened up an account. And sure enough, three months later, you know, I'm a 21 year old kid (laughs) who's got a sole proprietor business and like, it's all legit. Like I opened it up with the bank. They know that I'm an employee and sure enough, three, four months later, I get my first letter saying, Hey, you've been pre-approved for $15,000 line of credit. So great. Why not take that money and invest? And, uh, and so I'm studying, like, literally, I'm studying English literature at the time. I have the IFIC mutual funds course under my belt, and that's it. Like, that's the extent of my investment knowledge. And so you get the first line of credit, and invest, and things are going well. And, and then just realized, hey, like, why don't I do this again? And so let's register another business. And so this is now, yeah, like, kind of mid 1990. I can't remember what month it is at the time, but like, in retrospect like this is amazon was born and google was born and like this is like steve jobs had come back to apple and like <laughs> resuscitated took the you know rose it from the ashes like this is the time period we're yeah. going through right and uh, uh uh so i ended up doing that numerous times over and uh, the story started right <laughs> So, because I'm not investing in you know, actually, interestingly, to my credit, I had sort of a very I was playing with a lot of different things. So I had like a kind of a Dogs of the Dow strategy, where I'm kind of buying some of the so Bethlehem Steel, for instance, was a a Dow component that went bankrupt, right? Because the economy changed. Um, But I and that's one that I held. Um, I had a a whole bunch of small stocks as well, like these you know these dog shit you know penny stocks that are. been going bankrupt uh, once the bu- bubble burst um and then uh and then playing a lot with options so like writing call options for the the premiums and then buying naked call options and i and by the way i'm taking this borrowed money now this is the line, slide these lines of credit and putting it into a discount brokerage <laughs> account and i'm in a margin account so i'm now leveraging on Whoa. borrowed
0: money I, I have to say that with options, John, I don't <laughs> like, know if you covered that in any of your book. I don't remember right? yeah. any of the strategies from that? the book. Is that in the is that in the second edition of Value Simple? You're gonna
2: I'll have, I'll have to build it back in, yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah. I is, mean, yeah. this that is, is only is what funny. Bring up a lot is like, well, I mean, if I'm investing, I can't really leverage as much as if I go and get a rental house, so
0: right. <laughs> right.
3: This is only funny because we're 20 years in the future. <laughs> oh
0: right, right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you've got um, your margin account that's based on the line of credits from your multiple sole proprietors.
1: Right, right, yeah. And, and then I'm buying, and then well, I'm trading options. And you're trading options. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So as much leverage as I mean, I guess I could have levered up a little further with futures, but so yeah, about as levered as you can get. Um, leverage on top of leverage, and sure enough, the bubble bursts. And the bubble burst doesn't burst like overnight, it bursts over kind of like, it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a series of like collapses and then and resuscitations. And then over the course of kind of nine, 10, 11 months, um, it kind of bottoms out. And yeah, that's, it's easily the most stressful period of my life. It was just absolutely awful. I mean, it was, so there's all, you know, you're, you're, you're at work, and you're at school and you're just following the markets every single day, watching minute after minute of stock and and your mood is fluctuating with the markets, right? So some days and there's a bounce back, Oh, okay. I think I can move some money around and keep covering my payments. And then, you know, the, the bottom falls out again and you're just, you know, kind of trying to come to terms with all this. And so I, yeah. And so that all happened over the course of eight, nine months and, and at 20, I guess, Two, I can't remember, was I 22 or 20, I must have been 22 at the time, or 23, I ended up claiming bankruptcy. I had about 200, some $250,000 worth of, of debt wow. for a 23-year-old kid who knew just enough about investing to get himself killed. You know, the bankruptcy did what it was supposed to, yeah. it, it, you know, so that was a very interesting experience because it, it gave, you know, a stupid kid a chance to not have this sort of debt hanging over their head despite the fact that it does literally just wipe away your debt, it is, a you know, it's not, uh, I mean, for me anyway, maybe for other people, they would sort of use that callously. as like, oh, this is great, great, a jail-free card. No, for me, it was just a horrible experience. I wouldn't want it to go through. It served its purpose, and I learned my lesson.
0: That's, it's such an interesting thing, and I I don't know, it it must have been really interesting for you, too, to kind of have all this practical experience in the market kind of pre-education. That's yeah. not yeah, the way, or maybe it is a story that, that people have, but it's not the way that I normally think about it. And so it's it's got to right. have been interesting to go through and learn the theory afterwards, just as, you know, for however the experience worked out, you still had a lot of experience. You still had a lot of actual, yeah. so much of that theory is, it's it's it means something different when you're learning for it for the first time and and these are just things, but you had your mm-hmm. hands in all of this, and then we're learning the theory afterwards and I have to assume that that's just given you such a such an incredible perspective to talk to clients about to actually have gone through that all of those experiences it gives you such a such a unique perspective
1: yeah it, it is fundamentally um I, I don't know, just magnified my um, appreciation for risk. And I say appreciation because it's not, I'm not afraid of risk. I, like I'm not gun shy now myself. I'm still, I just have a much healthier respect for what can go wrong. Hmm. And so, you know, in all like the, like a lot of the stuff that I saw, like even like Bethlehem Steel was a great example of that, right? Like it wasn't just that I only owned these penny stocks. I also had some really big names. There was a bunch of um, biotech, like very large biotech companies that I was playing around with as well and basically kind of basing it on what drugs do they have in the pipeline and where are they in the FDA approval process and like if they get this approval, what happens? And you buy these companies where it's like widely expected that they're going to receive approval and then it doesn't happen. Or you buy Bethlehem Steel and oh, it's a Dow company. It's going to come back and it's just a matter of time and you're buying this value stock and no, I'm buying a falling knife. Like I'm learning a lot of different lessons about risk. And so that now I just have a very, very healthy appreciation for I know that doesn't, that's, oh, what are the odds that that happens? Listen, if it can go wrong, it will. You have to protect yourself. You know? I'm
0: curious just because mm-hmm. that experience, you know, we're talking about where we are right now. We've had a bull market that's gone on for quite some time. And, you know, there's quite a few in a investors <laughs> I'm sure that have only experienced that kind of growth that you were talking about, you experienced when you are in your early 20s. It's just like you're, you're betting on this and it's going up and everything's going great. You know, how, how would you talk to somebody who's kind of in that position now or how do you talk to investors that have kind of had that experience in a bubble now and haven't had that more... They haven't experienced lots of forms of the market. Kind of, what do you what do you say to them to try to try to broaden that out?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's funny you should ask. I had I published an article uh, probably a couple months ago called, um, you know, millennials, why you're not prepared for kind of the next market <laughs> crash. Um, and uh, and it's essentially paralleling. Like, I think they're kind of in a very similar situation to who I was. I I started to learn about investing and just came to the point where I had even a small amount of money to actually put into the markets at a time at the tail end of a 10-year bear market where, like, uh, everything's great. Everything's great. You don't have any trouble finding work. You don't have any trouble, you know, earning income. You don't have any tr- – everything you invest in is going up. And I don't think the uh, the market has such obvious places of, like – Outrageously overvalued stocks, like the the internet bubble, was like this very narrow space that was just everything was doing amazing. But but the general market, like the, even just the working condition, like the access to cap access to credit is like their whole adult lives. Yeah. Access to credit's been just yeah. And so it's not there. So I kind of in the article, it's not meant to be patronizing. It's not, mm. not like oh you don't know you're so. It's just like no, you haven't had a chance to experience anything else. I was there too, and so like when the music stops you just can't even imagine that the world can be so dramatically different than what you're used to because it's all you've ever known mm-hmm. and so i kind of lay out this this kind of case and then sort of give some tips for you know kind of how to avoid it so like the boring stuff like diversification um but even things like you know this was my favorite sort of tip from it is it, it was five sort of tips and one of them was like start a side hustle like have a job on the side like make do your own thing create a side income and like guess what if your job if you lose your job because the economy tanks and we go into a recession, maybe maybe the the side business is some sort of business that's still earning an income, right? Like maybe it's insulated, maybe not. But at worst case, you're going to get another experience. If it takes off, great. It may be another source of income. Like it's just it gives you this sort of this option so that you're not even psychologically you're not now devastated that your sole source of income is now gone. You've got options. You've been thinking about other things. You've sparked an entrepreneurial yeah. mindset. So anyway, that was just sort of a yeah a fun additional one but well um, even
0: just trying something new reminds you that you can try something new so whether or not the thing that you tried works the fact that you tried something means that you're more likely to say okay well what can i do now i I, it's really hard i used to think my background is fine arts is like i used to think that it was just the fine arts that got that really laser focus and and don't step out of your lane kind of thing but it's Every industry gets this, like, this is my identity, this is what I do, I can't step to the left or to the right, and of course you can. And getting past that identity issue and that psychological side of it is actually a big side of figuring out how to diversify yourself, however that kind of comes out on the bottom line.
3: I do think it's really interesting, and I don't know if there's research into this or how we could really kind of get a really broad spectrum of these experiences but like okay I started my first real conception of what markets did and what was like kind of being current with what was happening was in 2000 and, I don't know that I want to say that number 2004 2005 like when I first started in banking so when I started in banking everything was a debt consolidation. And it was still recent enough, the 2000-2001 bubble was recent enough that it wasn't like, oh, you can just put money in the markets and you will that's fine, you'll make lots of money. But like, so that window, whatever the specifics are, the window where you first start to be aware of what markets are and what they can do and the narrative around them. Must form you over time because we talk about the sequence of returns you receive kind of leading up to and then during your portfolio withdrawal years as being really important to this ultimate sustainability and success of your portfolio through your retirement. But really, the ult- like the what you bedrock believe about whether the markets are rigged because you remember 2008 and but that window, those whatever 40 years of investing or 60 years of investing everybody is starting from a different kind of ground level. I had this window into this part of the market. You know how you zoom in, you see like andex charts and you look at like a three month, and you're like, whoa, that's crazy. And then you zoom out and then you zoom out again and you see the thirty year and you're like, oh, that wasn't so There's crazy at all. But so people start with this little window, but they, they keep, they put that window in front of their eyes and they see everything through the lens of, oh, I lived, my first experience was this kind of horrible triple leveraged futures thing that i did or whatever that might be right and i think yeah. that probably says a lot about somebody else's you came out with a real appreciation for risk but didn't shy away from it i think a lot of people came out of the dominant narrative out of 2008 was all the millennials are just sitting in cash right i think a lot of people mm-hmm. came out of their first experience not with an appreciation of risk just a total fear of it so i think, I think that's, that's really- right it's
1: it's fascinating it would be really interesting i think yeah, so I mean, this is part of the 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 kind wealth thing, and we've talked a little bit of previously about kind of the financial life planning, bringing in these the sort of the psychology and the value side of how you perceive money and what's valuable to you and how you relate to money. So this notion that like money should be unemotional un- and like it's very it's, it's it's math and it's just it's nonsense. It's just absolute nonsense, and it's hi- highly emotional. We've got all sorts of hang-ups around money and how we relate to it so radically differs from one person to the next based on you know lessons you've received as a child and what your parents views towards money were and to Sandy's point about my very first experience investing in the markets and what that taught me and of course.
0: It's the same idea that you know we talked about all this time this idea of of your, there's that, um, oh yikes, Oxford, Cambridge, one of the Smart English universities. <laughs> Did that great study about your financial habits being really set in stone or really being formed by age four or five? This is a great story, very scientific. Mm. I promise you the study exists. <laughs> and the general sweep of it being like your first views of money, you're developing that relationship with money, comes very early. And so we're constantly. This is the thing that if anybody's been in therapy, you know, you're unpacking the things that you figured out as a kid when sure. you figured out relationships with all these things. It's the same with money, but it, kind of going back to what Sandy's talking about, it's, there's timeframes within that. That idea of your first idea of investing, you're figuring out your relationship with this thing for the first time. So you do get that narrow window in the same way where you're setting these things. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, as an overshare, my therapist talking about, you know, talking about, you know, here's the kid version of you. And he's doing what he needs to do in that situation. And he came up with coping mechanisms because he's a fantastic, adaptable, amazing human being. That's great. But if you keep using those 20 years later, they might not fit anymore. And so it's, it's hard and interesting to say, okay, can we identify the patterns that you set when you were first developing your relationship with this thing? Whether it's investing, whether it's money kind of at a base level, whatever kind of frame it is, and say, okay, do these apply to now? Do you need, what do you keep, what's good, what's bad, but that identifying and then the then the kind of analyzing afterwards. But that unpacking is, is, it's really difficult. It's difficult in any part of your life. It's difficult if you're working through something emotional, it's difficult to be working through something financial. It's, it's hard to recognize Then it's hard to say, okay, what do I like about that? What needs to change? What doesn't apply to right now, but may too in a similar situation.
1: Yeah, I think I like what you're saying about uh, uh, unpacking. I think that's I think that's exactly right because you don't uh, you don't know why you I mean you don't even know that how you relate to money is different than other people necessarily. You may not be aware of it, and then once totally. you are, just unpacking that and like understanding. Well, wait a minute, what is it? and Why? Why do I have those views? That's a whole that's a whole process. I mean, this is a, an aside, but like even the you know, kind of I think you were saying it jokingly, but like an overshare about the therapist stuff. Like the whole narrative around. Mental health, I think, is a is a big. Th- these are tied up, so I'm going to digress a little bit. But like, no, it should just be perfectly normal to like, yeah, I have a therapist. Of course, I go for like Obviously. an annual he- mental health checkup. Like, I do a physical, and I wouldn't shy away at all from talking about like, yeah, I went for my physical. Like, 100%. I wouldn't be embarrassed at all. That wouldn't be an overshare. But like, if you're going to talk to somebody about mental health, like, we should all be doing that every single year, no matter how happy you are, how many well well adjusted you are. 100%. Just like, yeah. I went for my annual mental health checkup. Like, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, anyway, that's a different issue. But like, if we had less of those hangups, I think there'd be more people thinking about financial life planning and thinking about, oh yeah, like of course you'd want to marry kind of your your hangups and your issues around money and discuss that as part of the planning process.
3: So I want to hear. So now, with all of that as the context, right. I want to hear about David looking at like okay so I kind of I learned from that you grew and you're working at Morningstar and you're kind of getting past the idea of I'm a financial professional and I went bankrupt and Mm -hmm. then then what?
1: So, uh, just, to, and just to give you some context, I mean, Morningstar, my role there was I led a team of analysts. I started, there was just two of us. I grew to a team of seven. We were covering Canadian mutual funds. And so, we would go in and write these reports and um, and say these things. And we would grade companies, individual, like the whole company as a whole, RBC, TD, Fidelity, uh, with letter grades, A, B, C, D, and F. They're called stewardship grades. And so, our whole um, mantra was, we're going to be the vo- an objective voice, and we're going to be that voice for the little, for the little investor who doesn't have the voice. Yeah, we did that for about nine years um, in Toronto. And then uh, I approached Morningstar about moving to South Africa to do the same thing for the South African market and spent four years doing that there, cool. um, mm-hmm. learning a whole new country and a whole yeah. new regulatory environment. And every single company was, Can yeah. you
3: rewind just a little bit? So it was like, you approached mornings. So you were like, hey, I want to go to South Africa? Right, yeah. Just, like, out of the blue?
1: Yeah, well, so I met, I, I got married, and uh, my wife works uh, in the nonprofit, uh, she works for an NGO, uh, she works at a lot in West and uh, East Africa, kind of out in hmm. villages, um, like the small, like <laughs> you kind like of like, most, like her.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, her. I fell in love with her, and, uh,
1: <laughs> um, yeah, she was okay, and, uh <laughs> We wanted to, we got married and we were trying to living somewhere new Um, Mm -hmm. and particularly a developing country. And so I kind of like looked at Morningstar's offices across the globe and found a few developing countries Mm -hmm. and thought, hey, South Africa sounds great because it's Cape Town, which uh, if you guys know anything about Cape Town, but it's like paradise. Yeah. So anyway, so I did that for four years. It was a really great learning experience. Um, My wife and I had our daughter there. And then I was thinking I was getting frustrated because Morningstar just wasn't investing in the market and and giving me the resources that I needed to really grow it. And I think more than that, it was just I had been there for I've been at Morningstar now for 13 years doing the same thing, two different markets, but the same type of work. And I was getting, I think, just running out of steam. Um, And so I thought about I was talking to some partners at the time about starting a financial advisory practice here back in Toronto. Both of them had been financial advisors their entire careers. Um, I went to high school with both of them, and um, we and and I wanted to. I was excited about hey, I can get in front of investors now, because at Morningstar you're you're doing all this work, you're speaking yeah. up for the little guy, you're writing these reports, and you put them out, and it's like screaming into the void. You don't get <laughs> anything back. You're not sitting in front of it. You're just, there's no client. Yeah, and so there's no feedback. And you don't know who's listening and who's not. And so I was like, you know, it would be really amazing to like get back in front of a. Cl-. And I was really interested in like. I hate to use the word because it's so overused, but I'm going to say it anyway, uh, and kick myself after. But disrupt the. So we did that for a year and a half, and I think what we realized was we had very different views. Like they agreed they wanted to shake up things and do things different. The industry's kind of broken. But we had very different views, and mine was much more radical than theirs. <laughs> and I think we realized that um, that and and sort of agreed to go our separate ways, and that was in March of this year that all happened. So I got back from South Africa in 2015, uh, July, did that for a year and a half with them. And then um, we agreed to go our separate ways. And that's when I started KindWealth, where I've kind of absent, you know, sort of abdicated myself from the investment selection process for for the clients. Uh, I'm just doing fee-only planning. Um, And that is born out of my experience as a professional who evaluates money managers it's really really hard to beat the market. And, you know, you know the finite John in Burlington at RBC is not going to do it. He's not. You know, like anything matter that be R- in Burlington. Right.
0: <laughs> oh, <Yeah>. sorry John. <laughs> well, like
1: no, he's just yeah. he doesn't have any chance, yeah. right? Like it's hard for like it's like Warren Buffett and Ray Dalio will do it, but like no John, you can't do it. Sorry. Like and and the thing is and none of them like Individual advisors don't ever measure their they – don't, they don't put together a, a coherent track record. Yeah. So you can never prove it, right? Yeah. And they don't ever have to prove it to themselves. And so they selectively look at – like, they don't think they're doing anything wrong because they don't ever measure it. So, they like, if you just – well, like, if you ask somebody without them measuring it, yeah, I think I'm doing a good job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, they'll selectively remember their wins like all of us do, human nature, right? And then suppress their, their losses or, you know, downplay them. Them. And so they think that they're actually adding value, but they're like, I'm just, I know that it's like, no, most of them are not. Maybe there are a few here and there that are, that are, but no, most of them are not. That's just math, right? Like, so just to give you some, some, some numbers. So Morningstar studies, how well we, how good a job we do at ev- at evaluating which pre- active money managers can beat the index. Yeah. But can we do it in advance of them actually? You know, so how, how well, how good we're predicting. Okay. And if you look across all of Morningstar's um, kind of fund researchers, they and we do this like there's 100 mutual fund analysts across the globe at Morningstar who did what we do in different countries, um, primarily Europe and North America, a little bit in Asia as well. And uh, the success rates are kind of in the neighborhood of, depending on the study and the year and all that, but like 50 to 60% of the time, we get it right. So like, it's not bad. That's better than a coin toss, marginally better than a coin toss. Which you know, like if you add that up, if even if it's fifty-five percent, it's better than better than not. Like you're yeah. still better off than had you not. But that's with like a firm that has three decades of experience doing this, with people full time every day, all day, doing nothing but evaluating money managers, and that's your kind of upside. That's fifty to sixty percent of the time is good. So like, no, why? Like, why would anybody else be able to do this? It's not worth the time and the effort people are spending on it. Get, you know, do go passive. Have a, you know, pay attention to the asset allocation, because like ninety eight percent or ninety percent of returns are dictated by the asset allocation.
0: See, see, that's what John <laughs> taught me in the investing book. That's the stuff we finally got to your stuff, John. Eventually. Okay. <laughs> Eventually, I was, who wondering the
1: was like, oh, this guy is <laughs> completely contradicting me and I hate him or? No, no, no. <laughs> no. It's, it
2: is all about being passive and all about, um, you know, not just the academic research about why passive is good, but also because from a real world perspective, all of the alternatives take a lot more work, whereas passive is like, OK, here's a decent model portfolio. It's got the elements I'm looking for. I'm going to tweak it however I have to to suit my risk tolerance, and then you're off to the races, and and, yeah. and you do it, and then you get back to working your day job and your side hustle.
1: Right. right, yeah, I mean, you just remove a lot of work, unnecessary work from the equation. Like, all that work for what? For the odds that you're likely going to underperform? Or at best, maybe marginally outperform after fees? Like, it's just why I and mean, i know why i know why financial advisors do it because they can add in margin right like they can justify hey i'm paid you're paying me to do this additional thing that you're going to pay me to do
0: but 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 why is it is it the idea like is it a bit like lottery ticket syndrome where it's the idea that people still have the idea that you know even though most people won't i could be yeah. the one to break the bank i could be the one to be lucky is is that the kind of mentality that, that people are but bringing to
1: it? I guess it depends who you're asking about the client or the, the
0: advisor. The client. I, I know exactly why the advisor does it. That makes total sense. They they're doing right. Like okay. I understand yeah. the motive. The
1: advisors don't even think they're doing anything wrong. Mm, they don't. No, they don't have a yeah. track record. They don't know how bad they're doing.
3: and yeah. uh, they, um, they, they, they unless they're unless they're like really curious people why would they go outside of what the like if they ever want to read anything about what the markets are going to do next week they get a weekly report there's a phone call they can like unless you break out of the little kind of bubble that your employment constructs for you there's they're they think they're doing a super great job when managed portfolio service came out at cibc i was like wow it rebalances if it goes out of tolerance by 2.5 percent. that's so awesome right i thought it was a cool thing
2: i
0: didn't know any better can i ask like Um, how long I'm sorry, David. How long does that, how long do, how long is that going to be an, ex- an excuse? Because we, I can, I'm totally like, I, I don't believe that people who work in financial institutions have some malicious plan to trick people. Like I, I know I'm, no. I'm totally on the same page with you guys on that, but at a certain point with the availability of knowledge and the availability to say, wait, we aren't tracking our performance. There is no way to prove what we're saying Two clients that push those questions hard like at what point do you say that that not knowing is not an excuse for for carrying the status quo forward but think about the person who's doing this job so in many cases
3: this finite like i'm talking about the like the retail level at the bank yeah the, of course i'm talking about the person that i was but you you're not a, you're not only an investment advisor for the most part you're the person who also does the mortgages and opens the accounts and does the estate accounts if you're particularly unlucky like you have all sorts of things that you do in any given day and 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 that doesn't mean that you shouldn't you know that you okay it's, it's no problem you don't have any responsibility to kind of turn your eyes on and think about the wider implications but and then you go home and you have two kids at home and you got to pick one oh, up at yes. daycare and you're really sad that you have a kid in daycare like, of yeah. course I'm t- telling my own story and at the time I really was already convinced that what I mean, like day two I was like Man, I don't think banking is for me and then and eight years later I left but um <laughs> it takes a certain amount of moxie to look at what you're doing and the environment upon which you have built your income, your financial stability. You probably have your own money invested there. You have friends there. Maybe if you make friends at work, um, (laughs) but there's a lot of reasons why it's much much, like, I don't blame regular people who never really have aspirations to be anything more (laughs) than the person behind the desk at their local bank branch. For not really like they maybe they didn't read Wealthy Barber, or they didn't read Value of Simple, or they didn't they didn't yeah. really thought about it too hard. No, and that's not that. Like you have
1: a, a it's a it's your it's a, it's against your own financial interest, right? Like you're a salaried employee of a bank. With a pension, yeah. right? And so like no, you your 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 obligation is to the bank, right? Like they're paying your bills. I actually <laughs> do think that financial advisors and planners should not be paid by anybody but a client, like. What's really, what does it come down to? Like, am I going to my loyalty going to be to the client who doesn't pay me or the bank who does? Like, of course, it's going to be the bank. <laughs> yeah. So, like, it's against your own interest to, like, be critical. I mean, yeah. you could then, OK, well, then I'm going to quit my job and leave. But like, again, you're asking a lot of people. So yeah. the, the all the incentives are, are the opposite way. As an aside, I think like the, the banks. Sorry, John, I'll let you jump in.
2: Well, sir, I sorry, just going to say, and it's very easy to convince yourself that yeah. you're doing a good thing because. You're helping the client, you're doing the financial planning for them, even if the financial planning is then all biased and skewed towards the products that you have available to sell them, um, you can convince yourself that you're doing the job of helping them, and this is just how you get paid. And so, yeah, okay, the funds I sell are going to underperform the indexes, but uh, the I can tell myself the story that the client is going to be better off if they work with me and then I put them in these funds, and then that's how I get paid, and then they're actually doing something.
3: And remember, these are these are people who are on their own. So if they are trying to construct a a more realistic worldview, like you talking about the mutual funds underperforming the indexes, at the same time, what they are receiving is an unending volume, like so banks are marketing not only to clients, they're also marketing to their employees. And it's in the bank's interest to make sure that there is an endless stream of counter counterfactual in a way. But just like, oh, look, no, no, I mean, but they didn't look at this. Or did you see, the, advi- did you see the, the behavior gap? And did you know that people who work with a financial advisor are 2% more, more wealthy at the end or whatever? Any of those things that the bank you to kind of like, oh, yeah, I guess, and I don't really have time to read any more of that anyway, so fine. That, and
1: it makes me feel good because I want to I keep doing this. I'm getting paid well to do it. I'm comfortable.
0: It, still, the thing that drives me crazy is, is the perception gap. Between what clients think they're getting when they go into a bank and what is being measured by the people that work at the bank. And that it, – it drives me crazy because, you know, if I go and buy a car, I know that that salesman is being measured on how many cars they sell. I know that. And mm. I know that. And, like, they can be great and they can help me find a great car. But at the same time, I understand – that their boss doesn't—they care that they're being nice to me, but it's secondary. And, when and I they're go, not
2: there to solve your holistic transportation problem. You're not gonna walk right. out of a car dealership, yeah. and you know this walking in, <laughs> but they're not gonna walk out and say, "Yeah, bus pass, right. bicycle." <laughs>
1: right, right. No, I'm there. They're selling. I'm going because I want to be sold a car.
0: It, exactly. <laughs> so it's it's the perception difference that drives me crazy. Is because. You know, somebody comes off the street and sits down in an office, behind, and behind a desk there is a person who says, I will help you with your money. And they say, that is great, I need help. And they say, I'm going to do it for free. And they say, that's amazing. Yeah. And that's what they think is happening. happening and so yeah. that's the thing that drives me freaking up the wall. It's not yeah. You do what you do. Banks don't change a thing, I don't care you you the perception has to change you can't sell one what well, you can because they are and it's going very right. well so you can completely do it you know what, right. what you know what you shouldn't you, sell it just it's it, it, it's really frustrating because that's the kind of thing where people think they're being helped and people like you're saying think that they're really helping and there are people that are helping it's just oh, of course. It's yeah, yeah. so much more convoluted and complicated. And then the metrics, because metrics really matter when you're trying to make progress. When when you're measuring how you do something, and it is if it's effective, if the bank and the, all the corporate structure behind that is measuring how can we sell most effectively, they're not helping their employers, employees um, measure the other kind of effects. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about this the other day in um, in the forum about like financial planning when you're talking about the pure art of financial planning, more in a fee-only style where you're just with the client. How do you measure success? And it's very difficult because there's a whole bunch of other metrics that you're bringing into it. You're talking about satisfaction and happiness and ooey-gooey stuff and how they use their money to create a life that they're satisfied with. Like this, these are hard things to figure out, but it's frustrating because... We need to figure out metrics so that we know if it's working. And mm-hmm. financial institutions are not working on metrics to help that kind of thing. Um, and that's, yeah. that's why this whole conversation that you brought up right from the beginning really matters, is what we measure matters. What we, what we um, weigh and what we note matters because it gives people the tool, employees, people that are doing this work – the ability to say, this is working, this is not. But if the goal is not the same, if you think, I'm trying to help this person, but all the metrics are going over here, you, you, you get exactly where you're talking about, David, where you're like, they think it's working. And mm-hmm. objectively, from the outside, you're like, well, it's not working in the way you think it is. Something else needs to right. be happening. But we don't have data. We don't have information. We don't have the tools to express that to them. We don't have the tools to completely express that to clients. And that's A major lack and
1: what's more is that the question is not is it working like I don't have any doubt that if somebody who knows nothing about investing says am I better off going into my bank or just trying to guess and do it myself without any research and I'm not like I don't have any education I'm not going to put any time and effort into it no definitely you go into the bank you're going to be much better off the question is like what are you paying and and what are the alternatives that's like so and yeah. that, that's the question. So like, yeah. that's what the banks focus on is, oh no, we are, people are doing better by dealing with us than if they hadn't. Sure, that's thats true, but that's a really low bar. <laughs> and so what what are the alternatives? What could they get for what price elsewhere? And that's mm-hmm. the question. And that—and that's what's so skewed. And, and I think out of whack with the banks is that they deliver less value. You know, they, they're, they're ext- out, of, out of all the value that it's created, they're extracting most of it for themselves. <laughs>
0: Well, and it's, if we're talking about, I think I've made this analogy before, but if, you, if you're if you talking about a word like health instead, and you're saying, um, you know, somebody's going to McDonald's every day, and they're feeding them, although McDonald's has better food all the time, they're working on their menu, <laughs> but like, let's say you go into a place that just sells Twinkies, and you're like, I'm hungry, and they're like, well, eat enough, all the Twinkies you want, and then yeah. you can leave, and you're full of Twinkies, and you're like, well, we're feeding people, but right. the yeah, mandate right. is if They're better off. They left full, right. and you're like, yeah, right. but when you put it into a wider context of health, you're clearly not, you're exactly like you said, your bar is too low. Right. But, right. you know, it's, right. it's it now clearly. Now that's a very,
1: that's a great analogy. I like that.
3: So can you tell us a little bit more about the, the things that you look at in people's, you, we talked about this, I think it was last season we talked about how net worth is more than just the things that we own. It's the, mm-hmm. It's all of the tools that we have at our disposal, whether we live close to family and have, you know, childcare available to us. I don't. But that might be an asset that you would like, you know, yeah. ideas like kind of looking at a bigger picture than just kind of a traditional balance statement. So one of the things that I found really, really interesting in the conversation that you and I had the first time we met was this this component, the thing that you're leading into, in a sense, with financial planning is these other the other things that people have at their disposal to do the things they want to do in their lives and in the world. So tell us.
1: Yeah. Um, so I kind of stumbled into that kind of backwards because by the kind wealth, what I'd wanted to do was with Eden Valley Partners was one of the things aside from just bringing a more sophisticated approach to the investment side was let's help people with their philanthropy. And that came from my wife and meeting her changed my worldview. I was a very, very, very selfish person for most of my life. Meeting her fundamentally changed me. I spent a whole bunch of time in Africa. Um, it's a very cliche story of a rich white guy going to Africa and then comes back talking about who changed he was by the experience. But, but like that happened, that, that <laughs> just is true. Um, so it's a cliche, but whatever, um, I'm going to own it. And uh, and so I when I made this switch, it was like, hey, how can I help people give to charity? Because not enough people are talking about that and there aren't a lot of advisors who focus on that. Yeah. Not only helping with donations, but this idea of like, hey, what causes really matter to you? So like helping you find organizations that do great work towards the causes you care about. But then like, hey, maybe you don't have a lot of money to give, but maybe you've got time and skills and you're an expert in digital marketing. And I bet you there's probably, you know, hundreds of Canadian (laughs) charities who need a lot of help with their social media or their digital marketing, right? So like, hey, maybe I'll, you know, volunteer my time or sit on a board or whatever. Like I want to help people connect. To the causes that they care about, and that got into, hey, like yeah, right. This idea of there are things that matter to me beyond just growing my net worth as much as possible, and the and the things that have made me happiest in my life um, have had nothing to do with with money, and have had all to do with kind of purpose and meaning and doing what I think is right. And so I just feel like there have to be a lot of people like that where they they would benefit from somebody who sat down and as they're talking about their money issues and getting into very personal discussions around their hopes and fears and goals and dreams and you know, intimate details around their family. And I mean, you often act as a bit of a therapist. I mean, I think you guys probably know that. Um, and so, hey, this is a great opportunity. We've already got this trust. We can talk about these types of issues. And so then I started to think more and more about just financial life planning, which is just is which is more than just, you know connecting to causes it's thinking about your values and how you they relate to money and are you doing with your money those things that are making you happy and meeting your values rather than just doing what everybody else does which is save 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 grow 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 and then retire and then spend spend it you know like that's fine and i think that underpins probably most people's long-term strategy but it doesn't have to be so formulaic and cookie cutter
0: And i love values-based planning i think it's you know i'm more rt far than numbers and so it's it's just it gets me all excited <laughs> but it's it's yeah. i love the idea too of of basing a financial plan on giving money away and and then giving resources away and acknowledging that you know money time energy you have multiple kind of tools to kind of feed those passions and feed those things that you love and that that's a huge rate of return that we don't have metrics to measure yet again
1: my goal of, it, of all this i'm kind of using financial planning as a excuse to get in front of people and help them connect with causes that matter to them. Cause I want to make, I, I want to affect positive change at scale. I kind of, when I met my wife and saw all these issues, I thought to myself, like, I don't want to go to another habitat for humanity build. Cause like not there's anything wrong with it, but I'm useless with a set of tools. So that's like going to be a fun experience for me, but I'm not going to be adding much value. And so I thought, how can I use my skills to affect change? And so this was a six or seven year process to figure that out. And I'm figuring it out with kind wealth. And the idea is like, if I can help other people connect to causes, like if you realize you want to be involved, it takes a long time to figure out how and like find your lane. And I want to speed that up for people and help them. And I've got a lot of connections in the charitable world. And I know a lot about what opportunities exist. So I can speed up that process for anybody who's interested. So I kind of want to use financial planning as the back as the, front door to like get in the back door with hey, let's talk about how you like what matters to you. What are you passionate about? Great. Do you want to affect that? Do you want to, you know, contribute to that? Do you want to fight for that? Great. If you have like time, money or or investments, like the impact investing side of things too is is, is a place I'm curious whether we can use impact investing as the gateway to get people to start donating more. Most people are sort of thinking the opposite, like hey, if you're donating, maybe you'll take some of your investment money as well and invest it in causes that matter to you. I sort of think about the investment is the easier sell because you don't have to give away the money. You're going to get it back plus a return. If you can get people excited and connected to causes and feeling good about what they're doing there, maybe then you can sort of unlock the donation side too. Like, hey, that feels really good, doesn't it? (laughs) Imagine what we could do if you gave us the money rather than just invested it and then received it back, right?
3: Plus it's a way to get familiar with it too, right? Like if the fear is, well, often the fear is, well, I don't know know they're going to use it, whatever. But if you've been an investor, even in in kind of a small capacity and started to get a front row seat in what's happening and who the players are, then giving money doesn't seem like as big of a leap, right? Right.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm I'm interested in if that plays out. I don't know if it will, but Mm -hmm. I'm curious.
0: I think the the line and the mandate of affecting positive impact at scale is such an exciting thing that is such an interesting and I honestly I think it's going to it's going to um it's going to play You're just about really... to say disrupt No no I wasn't although that would have been great better than you no know, this is like heatwave brain mush but uh it I think that especially with a millennial generation and it's you can't whitewash but the idea of making your money speak is such yeah. a resonating factor and that's gonna play really well um i, I think people there's are just really a lot of that. there
1: are a lot of ways that you can like so one of the taglines i kind of use for kind of wealth is like helping people manage their money in a way that matches their values and so the idea is like there's a lot of ways that you can. So one is that you can sp- spend your money on things that match what you prioritize. And oftentimes we don't do that. I think that's firmly in kind of the the, the life planning space, right? Like what do you, what matters to you? What's important to you? How are you now spending, investing and like using your money? Does that match? So you say like your family is important to you, but you're spending all your time at work and you're putting all your money in investments and you're not taking any family trips. Like you could have a conversation that's squarely in the life planning st- like sweet spot yeah it but more than that it can be like hey you say that so we know that you know and the environment's really important and or i don't know whatever like whatever your causes are whatever things are important to you like
2: like okay great research, like, like a really like top level <laughs> <laughs> what's that sorry I, I have a conflict of interest in that <laughs> yeah. that. he wants Why?
0: people to give money to health research because he writes yeah that's his field <laughs> oh right right yeah so like that might be one
1: for you Um, but like, so, so these are the things that matter to you. Like, okay. So like, so let's say the environment, right? Okay. Well, so maybe it's an issue of, so socially responsible investing can come to the fore or maybe it's, Hey, like think about, you know, you're, you're purchasing from, you know, this company, or you use this service or this, this company, maybe it's spending your money in different places and just talking about that as a conversation, not telling them, where they can and can't buy, but like thinking about, okay, like you can direct your money where you do and don't buy things can be aligned with your values. And then the impact investing side is, okay, now your investments are all open for not just like SRI. I don't know how much you guys know about impact investing, but it like socially responsible investing is like, Hey, just don't buy these certain stocks or, or buy these ones because they are better, Mm -hmm. more responsible Mm -hmm. companies. Impact investing is not, is, is a completely different investment that where charities or you know any organization NGOs that are doing good work take the money for some period of time use it to do something good and then pay you back that money plus a return so this is this is like SRI is very defensive right like let's screen out those bad things I don't want them getting my money you can go a little bit offensive by like hey I'm going to direct a little more money to these types of companies but it's typically like you still are buying just companies that are for profit companies doing whatever it is that they're doing to generate shareholder value Impact investing is no, this money is going to be taken. We're going to use it to like reduce the transmission of HIV/AIDS in South Africa over the next five years. And then I'm going to get that money back plus a return on it. And there's risk associated with it and all that. But like it's very offensive. That's very the connection to like, hey, my money is doing something that matters is much, much stronger. But all of these are tools. So none of these are like, hey, this is right for everybody. It's like, what what's important to you what resources do you have and in what ways do you want you know to affect the causes that matter to you and there are a lot of ways to do that and most people don't think about it strategically so b- building that into the process i think is what i'm excited about
0: i I really think that we need to do a whole another hour on impact investing. <laughs> Honestly, like that—that sure, yeah. no, that is something. It's, it's a cool topic. I have never heard anybody talk about before. I've been completely underwhelmed by SRI's in general to kind of fulfill yeah. the mandate of. Me too. Of putting your money in and making it making it match. I don't know. It's just it's it, it, it really does mandate. seem like oh these are okay and these are right. bad. You're like. Now I don't feel yeah. good about any of the things I'm investing right. in. <laughs> right, right. You <laughs> just made me hate everything. So that's right. really interesting. I But I think uh, with a fresh brain, perhaps. Awesome. Thank okay.
3: All right. Have a good okay. night, guys.
0: Thanks, guys. Farewell, team. Bye.
2: Goodbye.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's all we've got for you today. If you liked what you heard, head over to iTunes and give us a really good rating that really helps people find us that would be awesome and if you loved what you heard why not check out our patreon page patreon.com because money and lend us a little support so we can keep doing what we're doing i am chris entz and you can find me over at rags to reasonable.com like to thank my partners in crime sandy martin who you can find at spring financial planning springplans.ca and John Robertson, who you can find value at Simple or his blog, Blessed by the Potato, which is holypotato.net.